Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will hand them over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James of John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Good evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. If you're here with us for the first time, it's great to have you uh, here. We're sparse in number tonight, a number of people out enjoying uh, holidays in August, which is a great thing. But we have a very, very important passage to look at. And so I hope you will enjoy the privilege of digging into Mark 10 with us tonight. Uh, Do keep that page in the Bible open. Let's pray and we'll get started. Our Father God, we pray as you challenge our heart attitudes tonight that we would not be hard people. We would not be people who make excuses but that we would trust that you know best and that your ways are ways of life and freedom. Amen. I guess it would be no surprise to, uh, to state that we live in probably the most narcissistic culture certainly this country has ever known. We are the generation that created the word selfie. I mean, that should tell you everything you need to know right there. The selfie sticks, selfies. We are a generation whose morality is what seems right to me. We're a generation whose obsession is my identity. We are so turned in on ourselves. The great uh, growth companies of the internet are Instagram, Facebook and Snapchat, all about me and portraying myself to the world. Deep down, um, the truth is that All of us act and think an awful lot of the time as if I am particularly special and really I am at the centre of things. Uh, If you don't believe me, um, do what I've done this summer. Travel on a budget airline. Have you noticed, if you do it, everybody else on the flight is awful. They are just awful. They are so selfish. 
Have you, I mean, it, it can't just be me. I mean, you get to indulge the very British thing of the indignant stare and that tut. I mean, if you're passive-aggressive, it's just wonderful. You get to really just all gums flowing out. Uh, I mean, how can people pack that much? It'll, it'll mean that there's not room for my carry-on luggage. And, and they arrived after me, and they're now ahead in the queue. And it is appalling until I get a chance to get ahead in the queue. But that's different because I need to get onto the, the plane for... I've always got an excuse why it's all right for me to behave like that. I expect everybody else to obey the rules of the queue in a very British way, but I'm a special case. I'm not queue barging. It's just that I, I need to get to the front because I get airsick and, and so I need to get this particular... Everybody else needs to, to obey the luggage limits because otherwise there won't be room for the bags and the thing. But it's different with me. It's, um, I'm just, it's just I've got to get off the plane quickly so I couldn't put it in the hole. It's always different for me. We're always, always somehow making excuses for ourselves. We like basically to put ourselves at the centre of the universe. And my needs and my wants are at the heart of what happens. And my decisions revolve around those things, my needs and my wants. Let me say that is not Christianity. The life that Jesus Christ calls his people to is not a life where we put ourselves at the centre. And as Christians, the truth is, we slip very quickly back into that same attitude of self at the centre. And so we need God's Spirit's help to reshape our priorities again and again. And tonight he's going to do that. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to to bring ourselves before God and ask him to change us in ways that we need. As we look at uh, Mark 10 together, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us really to, to think much of Jesus, to think less of me, and to think more of others. That's really what he's going to teach us. To think much of Jesus, to think less of me, and to think more of others. Okay, uh, this is a message that is very countercultural, but it is desperately needed too. Uh, three points, you've got them on the sheet. Firstly, the Son of Man will die. So we've been working through Mark 8 to 10 over the summer, and we're on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus. And as he teaches his disciples both about what he's come to do, but also about what it means to follow him. Uh, and we get now to verse 32, towards the end of this journey. As they were on their way to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Now this is the third time and final time in this central section of Mark that Jesus is going to teach about his death. And things get really specific here. He makes detailed predictions. Look with me, verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death... They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. In Mark 14, 43, we read that Judas handed Jesus over to the chief priests and teachers of the law, just as Jesus said would happen. In Mark 15, 1, the chief priests handed Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman governor, just as Jesus said would happen. In Mark 14.65 and 15.19, the priests and then the soldiers spat on him and beat him, just as Jesus said would happen. In Mark 15.18 and 15.31, they mocked him, just as Jesus said would happen. In Mark 15, verse 15, Pilate had the soldiers scourge Jesus with a whip, just as Jesus said would happen. 
In Mark 15, 24, the soldiers crucified Jesus to death, just as Jesus said would happen. And in Mark 16, 6, three days later, we read that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, came to the tomb and found it was empty and Jesus had risen, just as Jesus said would happen here. Okay, so what? What that means, basically, fundamentally, is we need to listen to Jesus to understand his death. It is a career-ending tackle for the I-like-to-think approach that we so often adopt with Jesus and the meaning of his death. You know, the, I like to think Jesus was a, was a great social reformer. Um, I like to think that Jesus was a moral teacher who was ahead of his time or, or Jesus was a great guru of life. I like to think, I don't get to like to think with Jesus. I'm not free to come up with my own way of understanding him that I feel comfortable with. Because if he is able to predict with this precision and accuracy what would happen to him, well then when he explains why it will happen to him, I need to listen to his explanation. The man who can predict accurately what will happen to him is the man who has the authority to tell us why it will happen and what it will mean. And that's what he now goes on to do. And these verses have enormous significance for you and for me. As secondly, we learn the Son of Man will die as a ransom for many. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Is that not the most crass verse you've read in a long, long time? Look, God, I would very much like you to do what I ask. I'm really not very interested in your input in you know, how things should go. I'd just like you to just do what I say. Are we good? I mean, can you imagine? Except, isn't that exactly what we do? Uh, when, when I pray, and rather than first reading the promises of the Bible and the priorities of the Bible and trying to pray in the light of that, I simply bring God my shopping list. Say, God, please, would you do this? God, please, can I have that? God, please, would you stop this? Effectively, I'm saying, God, please, would you do whatever I ask? That's why the healthiest pattern for prayer is actually to start by reading the Bible and to allow God's words to shape my words to God. It stops me from behaving like James and John when I do that. Your will be done. And what is it that uh, James and John ask? Well, verse 36 tells us, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now, before we jump down their throat for this appalling thing, they have got further than the other uh, 10. They have half got it. They have at least got to the stage where they've worked out, okay, Jesus, you've said you're going to die, but you have said you're you're then going to reign in glory. And the others are still confused about that, but these guys have twigged, oh, you really are going to reign in glory, and it's going to be amazing. And what do they do with their wonderful theological insight? They call shotgun on the thrones either side. Yeah, great, wonderful. How, how valuable their theological education has proved. If Jesus is going to reign as God's eternal king, then, oh, well, somebody's got to be his number two. That'll be me. And I wonder whether Jesus' response in verse 38 is not also God's response to us when we pray those, uh, please do whatever I ask, verse 35 prayers, as he says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Now what Jesus does now is teach for the first time not just the fact of his death, 
but the reason for it. What his death will achieve. So three times in Mark 8 to 10, he says, I have come to die. The son of man will die. I will die in Jerusalem. And now he explains why. He hints it in verse 38, and then he'll state it explicitly in verse 45. And what we'll get really are three words that unlock the cross for us, or three ideas that help us to see uh, why God's glorious saviour, King the Messiah, would die. Three things that are of enormous relevance for you and for me tonight. And the three are the cup, the baptism, and the ransom. The cup first, verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? It's a rather innocuous sounding thing, that. Can you drink the cup? I mean, what is the big deal about a cup? Why would Jesus say drinking a cup? Ooh, that's a really bad thing. There are loads of cups in the Old Testament. If you just flick through your Bible thinking, maybe there's something in the Old Testament. There's loads of cups full of all sorts of wonderful things. But there is one particular cup in the Old Testament. It appears in uh, Psalm 75, verse 8. It appears again in Jeremiah 25, verse 15. And it also appears in Isaiah 51, verse 17, where we read, God says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. A picture of God's judgment on wickedness, drinking down God's unbearable punishment. That's what Jesus is talking about. You see, at the center of the Bible is a God who is good and just, and therefore he is very angry. And so he should be as he looks out on our world. I was reading this last week. Um, some of the testimony coming out as territory that was being controlled by ISIS has been released. And one just nondescript ISIS warrior uh, was explaining just perfectly matter-of-factly that um, for the last couple of years he'd bought himself four very young Yazidi girls as slaves. And he uh, kept them as his slaves and rotated through them one each night, just raping them in turn for the last couple of years. It's just what he did. Now let me say, if that doesn't make you angry, there is something very, very wrong with the state of your heart. And if that doesn't make God angry, then he is not worth worshipping. But God is very angry about that. Because he is very good. And he loves very much the people he's made. And God is rightly angry with the wickedness that he looks out and sees in the world around. He's angry about the way that we treat one another and the way that we treat him. And even if our own wrongdoing is far less in our minds, it is no less real. And we too will be found wanting when God's judgment comes. And the Bible pictures God's great judgment his righteous, wrathful judgment against human wickedness as, as filling this cup, this terrifying cup. And Jesus says, on the cross, I'm going to drink that cup down to its dregs. On the cross, he took the punishment that should be ours and drained the unbearable depths of it 
so that the weight of God's righteous wrath is lifted from you and from me. There is a cup. Secondly, we read, there is a baptism. Again, verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now, that is perhaps the most odd, surprising to our mind of the three. I mean, baptism is the sign of entry into the Christian faith. You know, someone goes down into the water. If you come here regularly, you'll see it. Someone goes down into the water as a sign of dying to their old life uh, and of being washed clean of their sin. And they come out of the water as a sign of the new life that we have in, in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So how is Jesus' death on the cross his baptism? I mean, that's just... I think the point is that when we get baptized, it is symbolic of our union with Christ. That we are, uh, baptism symbolizes us being joined to him by faith. So that his death is our death. His new life is our new life. We're united by him and we share in all that he has achieved for us. And so he speaks here of his death as a kind of baptism because at the cross he identifies with us. He is joined to us. And so our wickedness, our filth, our wrongdoing becomes his. And so he rightfully suffers and dies for it. And his riches, his status is perfect. His relationship with God and his eternal life, all of those become ours. The cup, the baptism, and finally the ransom. Now we'll look in depth at verses 39 to 44 in a minute, but verse 45, if we can jump ahead to that, is key to Jesus' understanding of his death, as Mark records it. It's the central verse, really, of the the entire gospel. It unlocks the purpose of why the great creator God would come down to earth in a physical human body, why he would live amongst us. Uh, Look, um, we'll start at verse 43. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there is an Old Testament backdrop that's meant to shape how we understand this this particular verse. Now, Son of Man is Jesus' most common title for himself, you may well know. And in the Old Testament, often it just refers to a human being, a Son of Man. But in Daniel 7.14, the Son of Man is a great divine figure whom God the Father gives all power and authority to. But there's another passage in view. This son of man, this awesome figure of authority, is to be held together with another figure. You see, just after Isaiah spoke of the cup of wrath in Isaiah 51, in the next chapters, 52 to 53, he spoke of God's servant. God's suffering servant who would be punished, chapter 53, verse 5, for our sin. And it's stunning uh, when you read through that chapter to, to, to see how God's holy servant is punished for sin. But just as stunning is that he can be punished for not just the sins of one person, a swap of one good man taking the place of one bad man, but he seems to be able to take the place of, as we read in Isaiah 53, of many, of us all, of my people, of many nations. And so in Isaiah 53, 11, we read that by his death, he will justify many. This substitute is incredible. 
And so as Jesus is revealing to us the heart of his mission and what the cross will achieve, he combines these two great Old Testament figures, the awesome divine son of man and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And he says, the son of man will die as the suffering servant. But why a ransom? Why ransom? We think ransom has to do with kidnapping. I went to Mexico quite recently. And so I thought I'd look up before I went because it's a hot spot for kidnapping. I thought I'd better just check, um, you know, how much money my friends here would need to raise if I was kidnapped. Um, don't worry, it was quite disappointing when I, when I sort of looked. I thought, you know, it used to be the average was in the millions. You know, I like to think I'm worth a bit, but apparently someone like me is probably only worth a few tens of thousands of dollars. So um, I hope you'd raise that. But anyway, um, uh, the Bible doesn't use ransom in that way. That's the way we think of it, kidnap, ransom. It's not like that in the Bible. In the Bible, ransom refers to the payment for the release of a slave. The payment for the release of a slave. Now that makes sense of the context when you look at it. Um, there's lots about slavery and service in verses 43 and verse 44 of Mark 10. Not so with you and said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. The Bible pictures us as slaves who need a ransom paid for our redemption. And there are two ways, really, that the Bible pictures us as slaves. Firstly, that we are internally chained by our sinful desires. And if you scoff at this as uh, typical religious people getting an, you know, all het up about desires, I'm not a slave. I'm basically a free person. I do what I want. Well, try stop doing something that is a deeply ingrained habit. And why don't we make it a slightly more real experiment? Why not ask a good friend, what's my worst habit? and then try to stop doing that. And then come back next week and tell me how free you truly are. See, the truth is, we are enslaved by our desires. And the Bible says we need to be released. We're also enslaved because we're imprisoned by the, the external death that is coming to us all. See, we've turned away from the God who is the source of life. And so every human is now destined to die eternally. Not to cease to exist, but to exist, but be cut off completely from all of God's goodness, his light and his love. To know him only as judge. And Jesus' death is the ransom that sets us free. See, God didn't reach into his wallet and pay a financial price for you when Jesus came. Said he reached into this world and became like you. And then he drank the cup of judgment in your place. He identified with us and he died on our behalf. And so he broke the power of sin and death. We no longer have to die forever. And finally, there is a new power. The power of sin is broken, and there is the power of God to change our hearts and our habits. It's extraordinary when you think of what Jesus did. Uh, I was saying that we're, we're, we're obsessed with self. There are a few things we hate more than when other people think worse of us than we think we deserve. I hate to be thought of as less than I am. And yet here is Jesus voluntarily taking on a reputation that is not his. Accepting guilt for crimes he has not committed. 
willingly taking on the shame for perverse actions he has not done. And he's done it all voluntarily, willingly, so that you and I could be forgiven and free. The innocent lamb slain for guilty, wicked man. That is the great, unfathomable swap that lies at the very heart of the gospel. It is the essence of the Christian message. There is a whole lot more to Christianity than that. But unless you've got that, you don't have anything. The heart of Christianity, that Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for your sins. That's the glorious heart. And what it means is that whoever you are, however you've lived for however long and whatever you've done to whoever, if you put your trust in the Jesus who drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross, if you put your trust in him, then you can walk out tonight as forgiven, as perfect in God's sight, and as guaranteed eternity in paradise with him. The Son of Man will die as a ransom for many. There is room for you, and there is room for me. But as I said, that's not the only thing that Christianity is about. And there's a sting in the tail, really, of this passage. As we read 30, that the Son of Man will die as an example to follow. One of the, I think it's one of the most surprising verses, really, in the whole of Mark, is verse 39. So you read verse 38. Um, Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And you expect Jesus to say, don't be so stupid. But he doesn't. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at the right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. What does he mean by telling them that they too will drink the cup? Well, the truth is that throughout Mark 8 to 10, we've seen a tension. Jesus is both the unique Messiah who will um, do the unique thing of dying for his people to save them, but he is also the pattern for us to copy. And so now we find uh, his death on the cross is both unique and also a pattern. His death is unique in that Jesus is the only one who will die as a ransom for many. Nobody else can die for the sins of the world. Nobody else can die for your sins. There's no other perfect person who could step in and take our place. Only Jesus can do that. He is unique. His death is unique. His death is the only death that saves from sins. But his death on the cross is also a pattern. A pattern of a life of self-sacrifice that all followers of Jesus are called to. All Christians, all followers of Jesus must walk the path of the cross. And so we should expect the normal life for us will be a cross-shaped life. The normal Christian life will feel like I'm bearing a cross. So Jesus tells James and John, if you follow me, you too will drink the cup I'm drinking and you too will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. James, John, if you follow me, you will know something of the persecution you're about to see me suffer. You too will give yourselves sacrificially to serve other people. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now we're not told whether they're indignant because 
they think James and John were crass and appalling or they're indignant because James and John got in there first. Mark is too kind to tell us which it is. But Jesus called them together and said, you know what those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, if you get what Jesus uniquely did by dying on the cross to pay for your sins. If you get what he uniquely did in in being willing to, to serve, to pour himself out, to humble himself for those who didn't deserve it. If you get what he's done for you, it's going to change you. We become, actually, it's a, one of the great principles of life, is we become like the things we worship. We become like the people we venerate or idolize. And if you worship, if you idolize, if you venerate, if you follow the man who gave up everything and took on your sin and your shame to save you, that changes you. We become less concerned with using others to serve self. More concerned with serving others. And that brings us to one of the most intriguing bits of Mark, I think. Uh, The talk of the thrones and the crowns. Do you remember verse 37 and verse 40? Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. And Jesus says, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Jump forward a few chapters in Mark and you find that with biting irony, Mark presents Jesus' crucifixion as his coronation. Jesus has been revealed at the climax of the first half of Mark as the Messiah, God's saviour king. And as he's nailed to the cross, Mark subtly, ironically shows us that actually he's been crowned as king. So he's dressed in a purple robe and given a crown to wear. The soldiers mock him, but they mock him by bowing down and crying out, Hail, King of the Jews! And Pilate affixes a sign to the cross above Jesus' head that reads, The King of the Jews. Mark wants us to see this is how God's Messiah is crowned. This is how he achieves his victory. This is the coronation of the King of Kings. And if you're an alert reader... As you read about Jesus' crucifixion, you'll remember in these verses, in chapter 10, we heard that when Jesus came into his glory, that someone would sit on his right and someone on his left. There would be thrones too. And as Mark describes the crucifixion, he specifically tells us that two others were crucified with him. Mark 15, 27, one on his left and one on his right. The thrones, the seats of power, of prestige, the glittering thrones in God's kingdom are crosses. When Jesus says to James and John, you really don't know what you're asking for. This is what he means. He means, look, in my kingdom, glory looks like shame to you. In my kingdom, greatness comes through sacrifice. In my kingdom, eternal life will be won through Voluntary death. 
Now, at other points in Mark chapters 8 to 10, Jesus will say, it's worth a life of self-sacrifice because of the future reward. Heaven will be wonderful, which it will. But here he teaches service is greatness in God's kingdom. Here he says, serve others, not as a means to an end. If I serve now, then I'll be great in God's kingdom. Here he says, serve now because service is greatness. Not a path to greatness, not a means to greatness, but it is greatness. When Jesus rises from the dead, do you notice in the accounts of the resurrection, we're told that he still has the scars visible on his body. In the great glorious vision of heaven in Revelation, John tells us that Jesus appears as a lamb who looks like he's been slain. What an odd thing. I mean, he's risen now. Why does he need to still look like he's been put to death? A gory mess. You see, Jesus' shameful death will not be forgotten in glory. (laughs) It'll be the very heart of glory. And the medals, the crowns, the trophies that we, the people of God, will have in paradise will be the signs and scars of our sacrifice and service down here sacrificial self-service of others is greatness in the kingdom of God. And our risen, scar-bearing saviour is the one who proves it. And that makes me wonder whether we haven't slightly lost sight of how radically countercultural Christianity is. We must never make the church just like a religious version of the world. We are to be a community whose defining characteristic is that we daily die to self. A community where service is greatness. Where we long to serve, not to be served. Where other people are valued and treated better than I treat myself. And that goes for everyone. Even the people I don't find easy, the ones who are weird, boring, the ones who've hurt me in the past, everyone. The Son of Man came to serve and we are to follow him. We're to value and serve others in the way we talk to each other, the attention we give, in the decision we make of who we talk to afterwards, of who we invite round to our homes and who we go on holiday with. We are to be like Christ in these areas. And yes, that's very unreasonable. And yes, that, that's ridiculous. But so is Jesus coming to die for us. But in his kingdom, service is greatness. We're to love others more than we love self, need or comfort. Francis Schaeffer said, the greatest apologetic for the church is love, how we love each other. And having been loved like this by Jesus, we ought to be marked as a community by a love that makes absolutely no sense. No sense at all. Unless Jesus Christ is Lord and unless he will one day return. Think much of Jesus. When you read what he has done for us in Mark 10, he is God, he came to die in your place for your salvation. And as you follow him, think much of Jesus, think less of yourself and think more of others. Let's pray.
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Father God, please would you help us uh, with this unreasonable requirement. Please would you help us, first of all, to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Help us to come to him, to turn to him, to receive healing and forgiveness and love from him. And Father, please, having done so, would you change us? Will we be shaped and molded by him and his love so that we would love one another? Father, please would uh, you give us um, less excuses in our own hearts for why we should not be the one to do the costly things. And Father, would you give us a more extravagant, outrageous, ridiculous love, a love that when others see it, they would not be able to explain what goes on in this church. And we ask this for your glory and that many might be saved. Amen.